Go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. And everything I'm going to be reading is going to come out of the ESV. But it's that section where we're dealing with water to wine. Let me open in prayer and then let me read the text and then we'll go through the text. Father, right now it's just I'm looking for you to not only calm my thoughts, my mind, but help us all to have open minds. So many times we read this text, we've seen it a hundred times, we don't want it to pass through our mind and, and out, we want it to pass through and down. God, help us to see newness in the text, deepness in the text, that we can take this further into our life in the deep areas to to learn to praise you more and to trust you more. God, we love you and thank you so much for your constant care and provision. In Jesus, amen. So we start with John chapter 2, verse 1. We'll go 1 through 11. And let me read the whole text together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So it breaks down into four different easy partitions. The first one is invited to a wedding. Again, it says on the third day. On the third day of what? I mean, you have to always kind of go, what's the timing? What's happening here? Well, it's the third day from when Philip and Nathaniel were called as apostles by Jesus. So this is part of that disciple group that's with Jesus at the wedding. It is prior to this to see in chapter 1 of John, and John gives a very fast summary. But we start in John's declaration that Jesus is the creator God in chapter 1, verse 3, where he states, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We move to then John the Baptist and the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament preacher. John is in Bethany across from the Jordan, and we're getting that scene again where we know what is happening. He declares and points out when he saw Jesus coming toward him, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And the baptism, they witness the descending of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. So then John declared that he bore witness to who Jesus was when he stated in verses 32 through 34. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And after this, Jesus calls the disciples. You've got Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. The interesting aspect is Nathaniel's from Cana. So this is kind of a coming home. This, this is a time point where Nathaniel would know who's in attendance here at the wedding. Now, we don't have a lot of exact historical and archaeological understanding, but we're thinking that the ruins of Cana sit about five and a half, nine miles north of Nazareth, close distance. Nazareth, at that time, was somewhat of a larger city, probably with a population maybe around 500. But Cana was a rural farming community and probably just a few set of families. But again, because of the close proximity that you're dealing with between Nazareth, the larger city, and Cana, everybody knows everybody else. There's probably some family transitions going on, still everybody within Galilee. Many there were friends or family in these two communities. Jesus' mother was there in some capacity in helping. She was always a gracious woman, caring, always concerned, willing to help. So we don't know exactly all the details. There was even one commentary I read that there was kind of a speculation where this could also be a family wedding, maybe one of Jesus' sisters. Now, there's no evidence of that whatsoever at this because that's not the focal point. But just to think about it, these communities are close. These people are close to one another. Weddings in small communities like Cana would have been a very huge event. And you think about it. It's where everyone comes together. It's not like you get this limited list and you have a few people out of thousands. But you probably have the whole community turning out, plus all the surrounding communities. So Jesus was invited to the wedding along with his disciples. But now we move into a part of the text that I would look at as a cultural faux pas. This is a major event that's going to occur that's not good. Think about it. Weddings at this time were over a period of days. I mean, for us, it's what? Maybe a day, portion of a day, pieces of a day. They're not long. These weddings are lengthy. They could go, usually started on Wednesday, went through the week, or some would have gone seven days. So they're major events, and they're major events just for the community itself. The key issue with these celebrations believe it or not, is to see what the bridegroom can do in his management of affairs before he marries. Isn't that something that, that we have in our own thinking, that when our daughters are married off, will this guy be able to care for her? Will he be able to be sustain a job and a business and, and a household? And those are the kind of things I think. 
here in this culture, he's had a year to build the house, to set the affairs right, to be ready. It's kind of another thing to where you're looking and, and observing this guy going, is he able to care for her? So all of the eyes are on the bridegroom. This is kind of reversed from our culture right now. It's more like the bride shows up, right? But it's an amazing thing for, for the reality to see at the proof. Is this, can this man care for this woman? So the celebration itself is another test of his management and financial skills. But something happened that would bring about a cultural disaster. Let's read again, starting in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So verse 3, the, the wine ran out, okay? Nothing big there. It's, it's a true reality. Yep, this would be the top news in the Cana Gazette, right on the front page. It's a point of disgrace, and if this were to ever happen, horrific. Some commentaries are read that actually said there could even be legal repercussions for something like this. Now, I don't understand how that works, but I'm going, if this is that big, I could get it. So a point of disgrace if this were to happen. We're talking about a place and a time you could not just go out to the corner store and buy wine to continue your celebration. You could even have a, a reality because of the size of the community and community distances. You could have probably even depleted the wine surplus in the area. So think about it. It's not just going out to the store and getting what you need. You may not even go to the next town and get what you need. You've got a dire situation here. And by the way, the celebration is ongoing and they're out of wine. Bad scene. So Jesus' mother goes to him and clearly states, kind of point blank, they have no wine. They're out. Nothing. A disaster in a town's large social event. It's embarrassing. It's a disgrace. And with something as simple as wine, how will this guy ever care for this woman? You know, it's that kind of stuff that's kind of rolling in your heads and you're going, I don't know. They ran out of wine already? What did he think? What's going on? So Jesus' reply in verse 4 for us to our Western ears seems a bit harsh. It's uncaring, downright rude. I would have probably gotten whacked in the back of the head if I ever called my mother woman, Right? <laughs> So how in the world can Jesus reply to his mother this way? Well, again, if you and I just kind of read through it, we're missing all the context and the depth of this. Well, it's not harsh. It's not rude. But it's still a respectful rep reply to his mother. It's more like calling her ma'am. It's not close and intimate, but it is still respectful. It's still honoring. But it marks a point of separation between Jesus and his earthly mother. There's a change here. Jesus uses this term again at the cross 
and John 19, 26, and 27. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever pulled those two ends together? Where he says in that, he says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Separation. After 30 years, he's done his mother's will and cared for the family as the head. But now the relationship changes to the will of his father. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus now been away from the home for months, and the first chapter of John has given us a view of the start of his earthly ministry. Hence to that separation. There is a change occurring, and Jesus makes that declaration in this text. The separation is now amplified in Jesus' reply by saying, what does, does this have to do with me? Another way of looking at this to kind of keep in the context is it's kind of a little bit difficult phrase to translate, but it's more of what do we have in common? What do we have that matches? We're on two separate paths is what Jesus is saying. There's a change. Her request now does not fit into the divine plan set before him. The divine plan is the cross when he says, my hour has not yet come. This points to the cross. And the purpose of his life and ministry on earth is now set on that divine schedule. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why she would ever go to Jesus and ask him for help? Why? I mean, there's probably a lot of other people there that probably have a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on in that area and where maybe the resources might be, but she goes where? To Jesus. So why? By this time, we are confident that Joseph is dead. So Jesus is the head of the family. His mother would have naturally gone to him when there were issues that needed resolution or assistance. All of his responses to the needs of the family were perfectly handled being God incarnate. Can you imagine that? Every decision he would make is the perfect decision. His resolution to anything was the perfect resolution. Everything he did was perfect. Why wouldn't you go to him? It's just natural. So it was natural for her to go to him concerning the wine. She's not expecting him to perform a miracle. Why? He's never done a miracle yet. Does the Bible actually say he never did a miracle? We have no recorded entries at all. The only thing that makes your brain kind of go twiggy is the apocryphal books. There, I think it was, I forget which one it is, they do talk about a time when Jesus was playing with his friends and they were playing with little, little uh, stone or clay birds that they'd made. And Jesus turned his into some little birds that flew away while his friends were sitting there with their 
clay birds. So we get no biblical record whatsoever that's authenticated to say that he did anything. And hence, every biblical writer points to this as being the first miraculous sign. So everything from that point backwards, we're saying there was a... But again, you still realize, too, that as Isaiah said, he grew up, what? No commonly former majesty. He drew, grew up just like everybody else. But the demarcation of the change was John the Baptist when he said, there is the Lamb of God. So that's what says that he didn't, that he never performed any miracles, that he grew up in stature and... And stature and, and power and, and, and power as far as a man and his, his strength. I've always, and I, I know this is my gripe. <laughs> I'm off context here, but this is my gripe. The pictures we see of Jesus, you know, the Sistine Chapel and the whole thing, gripes my inside because there's this fluffy little soft dude. And I'm going, he's a carpenter? You have to understand, too, the translation of the word carpenter, biblically, is a little bit more than just the guy working with the wood. It's the construction worker. Now picture this small, thin, thin, sorry, Bill, this thin Jesus with this long, straight hair. Does it match a Jewish man at that time period? No. Does it match even the Roman busts that you see Archaeologically, no. So, he's not weak. He's strong. But he's never done anything to point anything to himself in the 30 years he was going. You also have to realize, too, the mark for someone who becomes a rabbi is at age 30. We've talked about this before in previous messages. That as they grow up, as they come out as being a 12-year-old, they have already memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. By the time they come up, if they're old enough and a male, they come a little bit further. They're what? They end up knowing the whole Old Testament by memory. It was an oral society. It functioned that way. Once you get up to that point, and even if you are chosen by a rabbi to follow him, you're not handed off to be a rabbi until you're 30. This is the marking time. So, she goes to the Servants and ends and just says, do whatever he says. Now again, she's got no idea what he will or could do. But she knows he's the one who will always come with the right solution. So she asks them. And it also helps them if she's a little bit working of the celebration. If, if she's helping the celebration, it would be natural for her to go to him and then tell the servants, whatever he says, do it. Because they don't know who this guy is. I mean, some stranger? No. So we move to the point we've got from nothing this is occurring. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast came to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, 
than the poor wine, but you keep the good wine until now. Notice the elements that you're getting. What's the detail of what's happened here? All right, so the scene is set with six water jars, not pots. So don't think, the, think in your mind it's going to be some earthenware. You know, you go down to the ceramic store and you work it up and you kind of glaze it. No, no, no. These carried water for purification. They were usually hewn out of stone. So they were to be not only pure, but even if you would say a clay pot, a clay pot would always be classified as an unclean vessel. So here it's stone, stone jars. So in total would be about 120, 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. And they're heavy. They were there for the ceremonial washing described in Mark 7, 3 through 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing the cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. It's your cleaning water to purify everything. So there's a lot of water required. And this festivity is not over with. So the water is needed. So he commands the servants to fill the water jars to the brim. Again, what I said, the details here are extremely critical. You've got to follow. It was not that they would be filled halfway and then wine added to fill them to the brim, making it look like they had, he had done something amazing. Nope, nope. Wine in those days was mixed either three or ten parts. This was a standard issue for public water that had to be saved. Water was not safe at that time. I mean, we've got a lot of purification systems, everything. We do an awful lot for our water, but there, anything could be brewing in the water. So mixed with some wine, sterilized the water so they could drink. It was part of the culture. It was the way things were worked. So it was mixed wine, and they knew that drinking straight wine would be the cause of drunkenness, so the wine was diluted. Keep that in mind. Once they're filled to the brim, okay, Jesus commands them to draw some and take it to the banquet cap and, or the head of the banquet. He would be the one that would know that the wine was out. And now he's testing wine for its quality and for its availability. You have objective witnesses to the miracle that just occurred. You have servants. They're not invested in anything. There's nothing about it that they're going to... They're just servants. They're just there to help with the banquet. Drew the water and knew there was nothing but water in the jars when they drew from the jar. The master of the feast will also testify of the wine. So we know from the point of drawing the water to the time the testing, you've got wine. Now what about the wine? It's probably the best, right? But the weird part about it, you get some people who do not believe in miracles saying, oh, there are the dregs of the wine in the bottom of the jars that remain there, and when they filled it up with water, wine, right? Well, play with your logic on that one. Doesn't take much to come away from it. What were these jars 
originally and always filled with? Water for purification, cleansing, right? Not wine, oop, rinse it out, go water. No. And oh, by the way, if you got the dregs of the wine at the bottom and you fill it up that big of a container, you're not going to have the greatest wine. It's going to be, it's be like, okay, let's play this game. How about reheated coffee grounds? Yeah, oh yeah, you got it, you got it, okay. Moving on, right? They were there for washing, it was not for wine, so you're not going to find dregs of wine in the bottom of these jars. Notice the reply of the master of the feast when he tasted the wine. The master of the feast called the bridegroom like, come here, this is amazing. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, what do you do? You start cheapening the stuff, watering it down. I mean, what are, what if, what's the old phrase we've had here? A few more people come over that you didn't invite before for, for dinner. What do, you, what do we say culturally? You just add more water to the soup, right? So you just spread it out. He goes, you're not like that. This is different. You have absolutely produced for us, for this celebration, you've kept the best stuff for the last. That's weird. Uh-huh. Hello? Bridegroom's going, uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, he's just as shocked as everyone else. Like, uh, it's not my normal standard, but sure, you know. I'll take it. Think about this. It's the best wine. It's perfect wine. I had to think a little bit deeper on this. Jesus created wine, the best wine, from nothing. Best from nothing, okay? Not only that, it was wine not made from the corruption of the world. It was not grown in the soil, on a vine, picked and crushed and stored and fermented. It was instant wine. The seeds did not need to be planted. The plants did not need to be matured. The fruit did not need to grow. It was wine now. This miraculous sign was given without fanfare or announcement. It was not a show to bring attention to Jesus for a grand start of his ministry. So many that are gospel preachers today do it for the show and to be seen by men. They want the spotlight, but there's no show here. So who is this man? Turns water into wine. He's God in human form, for only God can create anything from nothing. And we see this evidence as the apostles, while in the boat, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then he rose, rebuked the waves and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The waves are violent and intense, caused by the great wind. 
If you've ever been on a lake or a shallow lake like they were on, Galilee was a shallow lake. Had on the eastern side high mountains, drove tremendous amount of wind down in the center of this lake. It turned this thing instantaneous into a disaster. I mean, these fishermen knew that at any time you could die. The storms were that severe. But notice, when Jesus calmed the wind, what also went calm, same moment. Waves. Waves don't go calm instantly. If the wind stops, it's going to take hours before that the waves settle out. No. Both the wind suddenly stops and the waves go to nothing but glass. And the men are standing, are, are, are there just going, uh, the men see that what occurred and they're left with one question. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey? So what's the answer? It's 100% God. And it's Jesus, the man God, before them. That's the same thing that we have with the wine. That's all that's left. The same power of God is being shown with the water turned to wine. And you ask the question, what sort of man is this? The water turns into perfect and the best wine. It's God. Jesus is God. And this first sign is testament to that truth. The men that drew the water, now wine, knew exactly what occurred. They knew what they filled the jars with, and they knew what the master of the feast tasted. From nothing. So now we have the evidence. Now we're pressed with a choice. So we come to the point of decision in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did it in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. If this was the only sign that we had, it's enough to know that he's God. The sign is a strong witness as to who Jesus is, and no man could have done this sign, and no man has done this sign. John is clear in his gospel as to who Jesus is. John 21, 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that the testimony is true. Remember what Peter said when he was confronted in trial? We're not giving you cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of these things. The facts, the truth is set before you, and you now are pressed with what to do. As you move through the book of John, you will encounter more proof. This is only a sampling of the many signs that Jesus did proving. You go through John, and John will select out seven more. So there are a total of eight miraculous signs that point to Jesus being God and who he is and who he came as. John twenty one twenty five. now there are also many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written if you could write all of them. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Can you imagine that? Have you ever thought long enough to think about how much that is? And we get a sampling 
How would you like to be the apostles with him for three years? How much did you see constantly? So we're all pressed to make a decision. Do you who have never surrendered your whole life to Jesus in repentance, will you trust and obey the man God Jesus? Do you need more proof to turn your life over to Jesus as Lord of your life? Do you need more to surrender your life to Jesus in complete trust for who he is and what he calls you to do and be? Will you completely trust the creator God set before you here? Okay, to you who have repented of your sins and followed Jesus, do you trust Jesus with your whole life? Do you know clearly that you can do nothing without Jesus? When times are hard, do you trust him fully? Even though you don't see where the resolve and the end will be, do you just trust him completely? He made perfect wine from nothing. Nothing. And as James stated in his letter, when we are faced with trials of any kind, we are to go to Jesus. And if we doubt, we continue to go to him, for he will care for us and strengthen us. So I ask, examine your life. Trust Jesus. The evidence that you have this morning is overabundant. I know one of the hardest things as a Christian, we hit hard times, something rough hits us, comes, you know, you might say a hard side wind knocks us off course. Where do you go first? Who do you go to? Who do you start a conversation with? Who do you trust? Many times, we find ourselves going everywhere else but Jesus. From nothing he made wine. Why? The evidence is that Jesus cares for people. That's another reason why Mary went to him. He cares for people. He cares for the situation. He cared for the bridegroom. The humiliation he would have had. The disdain on the whole family. I mean, this is, this is large, and, and he had great care and the concern to make sure this was not a blight on that family. I mean, how many years could this thing be driving through that poor man's marriage? Man, I remember as a celebration, dude, you just ran out of wine. I mean, how's your wife doing? You know, he's like, whoa, okay. He can be fully trusted. No matter how black the day may be, you trust him. You and I don't know the end of anything. I mean, I think about it. Did Job know what was going on and why things happened to him? We come out of that whole book and going, um, so how'd it go? He doesn't know. Was that his concern? Again, one of the greatest elements of a man who knows God, don't forget, he doesn't have the whole codification of the Scriptures like we do, right? He knew God. He had an intimate relationship. That takes time. That takes building. That takes intimacy with God. He loses his whole family. You and I, our eyes are and our mind are all turned on going, 
what's he going to do? I got a feeling I know what I would be doing. What's he going to do? What's he do? He goes, Lord, you've given me everything. You have the right to take it all away. I praise you. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? See, this is the God before us that turned nothing, water, into wine. Common everyday box wine? No. The best. The pure wine. That's what he does in our life. He cares for us, and he can absolutely be trusted. Let's pray. Father, our humanness is always in the way. We tend to so quickly go to things around us, the world, our self, our mind, figure out things. And then when we just hit the, hit the end, we just, <laughs> oh, then we turn to you. May we learn very quickly that it was an event of great disaster that Jesus cared for this family and at the same time did an only God-can-do type miracle of turning water into wine. We know very simply that you can sit and wait a million years for that water to turn to wine and it will never turn to wine. But in an instant... You created it. You can be trusted. And we can rely on you 100% with our life. God, help us to learn from this. Go deep in our life to trust you for all things. We love you and again, so appreciative of all that you continually do. We love you. In Jesus, amen.